0: Hi everyone. My name is Navridi, and I'm Eric. And welcome to our podcast Above and Below where we interview change makers and industry experts to help us explore how we're shaping our culture and how it's shaping us.
1: Okay, so here we go. First podcast of the new year, we have Reth Eddy here. Um, She is a expert recruiter based in New York. Welcome, Reth.
0: Oh, thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me.
1: Yeah, thanks for coming in. So Reth is gonna start telling us a little bit about her background and how she came into recruiting today.
0: Well, thank you so much for such a great intro. Um, Expert recruiter is very, very kind, Uh, but I am a recruiter now at Komodo Health. Um, So I'm a lead for sales and marketing recruiting specifically for Komodo. And prior to that, I was the head of talent at a venture-backed equity fund called CEDAMEST. And before that, I was at uh, Axiom for four years. So we can talk about that too. Um, But what I usually do is uh, work with like more senior recruiting now. about seven years, seven to eight years of experience there, and um, on the side, I do some executive coaching as well as startup recruiting consulting.
1: Great. So, so why recruiting? How did you end up in recruiting?
0: It's a good question. Um, I get this question a lot, especially from candidates. Um, and I was never the type that thought I would go into recruiting. To be honest, like um, I came from a background where my parents were just like, you know, doctor or lawyer. Um, they moved from India when I was like super young. So I was, I thought I was going to be a lawyer for a long time. Um, but I ended up getting my first job as paralegal right outside of school um, after I graduated, and I realized like law was just not the right path for me. So I was moved. I moved to New York. You know, kind of had five thousand in the bank, and I was like, I'm just gonna make it work. Um, and there was, you know, it was kind of this time where there was a lot of startups that were hiring, um, I ended up just finding like anything I could and I ended up joining this like legal tech startup called Axiom. So I was working really closely with our senior leadership there. um, And at a startup, you wear so many different hats. So it was like so easy to be in a position where I could just do a bunch of different things to figure it out um, because it was this narrative in my head that I was like going to be a lawyer. Um, so when I ended up just kind of doing everything under the sun at Axiom, I was actually tasked with, you know, really, one of my jobs was really working closely to people just to make things happen. And when I, it was like my last year there when I knew I was deciding to move on um, to a different startup or just to go somewhere else to kind of start over. And um, I was out in Germany populating just kind of where our lawyers should sit because Axiom's value proposition is like we open up in different areas across the US and worldwide in general. And um, we make law just more accessible, like for lawyers. So it's like remote work, it's like different projects. You get to work with tons of different clients. And I found that I kind of had a natural talent in terms of connecting with people and making them just socializing different opportunities or just kind of making sure that there was identifying a population in which we can find supply. So, I learned how to source. I learned how to interview. I learned how to um really identify the kind of skill sets we needed for these contract assignments. And then, um when I was just kind of done with that, and you know, Germany was just like a very temporary assignment. It was like two months, I ended up finding a role with SedenB, which was as a head of talent. And it was really, really interesting because, basically the co-founders there were not really subscribing to the notion that there was one way of recruiting and they were like if you had to toss recruiting on its head what would you do like what process would you design so uh, that's kind of how I full-time just decided to be you know in recruitment for sure and uh, that was about yeah uh, like two years ago now in terms of just kind of the way things have evolved. Um, CNMS got acquired by a different company in crypto, so I ended up leaving last May and uh, found Komodo just kind of right after. So in terms of just uh, startup recruiting and that whole process, that's like kind of my niche now.
1: Great, thanks for going through all that. Yeah, we were just talking before we started recording about how millennials kind of just grab what they can, fall into something and you end up having all these different types of roles. Sometimes you're doing four jobs at once. Um, But yeah, it seems like you have to be a really good people person to be a great recruiter and like want to do that, talk to people, try to understand them, what their goals are. Um, That's interesting. Going back to what you said about seed invest asking you to turn recruiting on its head. Like, you know, obviously, you know... (laughs) No one loves doing the job search. Maybe a few people do. You know, it can be a little demoralizing getting rejected after a while, and you know, it's not like you're just getting. I mean, I know, maybe some people just some people do get offers thrown at them, right? Um, but for the most part, it, it's not the greatest process. I don't know. So, what do you think has been working in the past? Like, what has been like? What have you like kind of pushed aside? And where is recruiting? Like heading now
0: It's a good question I've thought a lot about this because I've realized You know recruiting is my passion I do love it as a profession And it's opened a lot of doors for me I think w- where it's going, it really depends on the industry. Like i am definitely noticed that most of the workforce is definitely going remote. Um, that is something that, you know, most startups are even just kind of embracing wholeheartedly now. Um, there have been startups that are just like, you know, remote is the way to go. And we just want to hire the best talent regardless of coast, regardless of um, these barriers that people are just kind of placing on themselves, especially now that technology is making things much more accessible. Um, my company, for example, has decided, you know, we want to be bicoastal because these are the most kind of, we look at uh, talent heat maps, if you call them, and like New York and San Francisco are really, really hot ones, um, but we also know that people are outside of those coasts and it makes sense to look within the within the U.S. to kind of figure out how to station people. So we have people in Arizona, and Car- in Colorado, in Texas, and I think... Um, more and more, I've just definitely noticed that more and more companies are really interested in that model. And um, it's a little interesting on the back end because you have to figure out how to function in those geos and getting people paid is like a whole different thing. But I definitely think the future of the workforce is going to be more and more remote. And um, I think I've noticed a lot more people are, you know, consultants on the side working for themselves. Right, right. Um, that's definitely the model that I've noticed in a lot of our age group as well as just like people I've seen that are just recently graduating.
1: Right. We're we're totally with you on there. Narita and I do not like being tied down to a desk eight <laughs> hours and, you know, it's just not good for your health. Um, it's not, it doesn't make any sense anymore anymore. Um, You know, we don't, I don't need to stand around the water cooler and talk about what you did on the weekend. I mean, maybe like on the offside, but I'm not a big small talk person. That's why we created this podcast to do a little more big talk and go a little deeper. Um, So that's great that you're seeing trends in remote work because I guess when we scan LinkedIn, you know, sometimes we'll look at LinkedIn for potential client work, um, but like a lot of it's just like a lot of it's like traditional. Full time postings. Um, I'm not seeing that much innovation. Like even though there are all these new platforms like ZipRecruiter and Indeed. Um, do you recommend any certain like um, channels to go through for maybe young millennial or really any age? Like or is it broken down by demographic? Um, you know, a lot of people find jobs through through their own networks. Um, but what if you don't want to go through your network and you want to just, you know. Go to ZipRecruiter or, or wherever. What do you What do you think is the best route?
0: Yeah, it's a good question because it's another one I get all the time. Um, I mean, my answer might be the harder path to take, but I do think it'll actually amount to more fruitful work. I really think I do believe in the whole networking thing, but I don't believe it in like a cheesy way that's like kind of the way that when I look at articles online on like how to get your dream job or how to you know get dream clients if you were trying to be a consultant um, I definitely think that the way to go is it is about who you know and luckily I've been in situations where um, most of my jobs are like really working with closely with co-founders and that a lot of this network is not really published online, right? So it's like you have to kind of identify the biggest stakeholders in different businesses. So the way I would actually go about it is look at a roadmap and kind of think, like, what are the companies, what are my dream companies I want to actually work with, right? And then do, I mean, part of, I, when I was listening to your podcast, I know part of it's organizational design. So you guys are, Probably experts in this, but you can definitely identify key stakeholders. It's actually the same um, sales strategy that most people use in business development as well as talent acquisition. Um, talent acquisition and business development, like in terms of sales funnels, are very, very similar in concept. So, my job is to find the best talent out there. So, what I would do, um, I look at like a dream list of companies in terms of my ideal demographic. So I'm in healthcare, in healthcare data right now. So we have a bunch of different competitors. You know, Clarify is one of them. Um, there's like a, best, basically there's a list of just healthcare players in the space. So I would go out and map who the key stakeholders are and the talent that I wanna go bring out there and actually go Reach out to them, so I I could do different ways of reaching out. I could like hunt for their email address. I could LinkedIn message them. I can find them on Instagram. I mean, I joke sometimes that being in talent acquisition is like being a stalker because you have to just know what kind of touch points to just reach people to even get that audience. And half the time, I have to reach out to people five times before they even just decide to talk to me.
1: Well you as a recruiter, you have to reach out five times. Oh.
0: Yeah, it's not uncommon. So. I think you should have that same mindset when it comes to your own business or even building your portfolio. It's much harder to do this, like representing yourself. So it's much harder. That's why you need to kind of triple or quadruple your outreaches. Um, So if your main demographic is, hey, I just want to work for startups, which is what I really want to do. And that's my passion. um, I like working with founders specifically. So I like knowing that uh, my imprint on like the way you're going to be recruiting will be adapted into smaller organizations or you know the ideas are going to be big one day but it's really competitive right now and I think a lot of founders struggle with that so I like puzzling those problems out with people so I would identify you know 100 to 200 companies I want to work with and actually reach out to 20 or more a week
1: oh that's, yeah that's a good metric to reach yeah I agree I think that's a good strategy starting from big picture like and your criteria because oftentimes we could be looking for a job and we're kind of in this mindset of scarcity like I need a job so you're just like looking at the job boards like oh I can do this or I can do this and um, but knowing what you want and that I think probably resonates with recruiters and they can see that like because I think you know we talk about this or I I see it on social media with like Gary uh, Vaynerchuk. Yeah, Yeah, I love him. Yeah, he's an interesting guy to follow. you know, can be polarizing, but you know, he's built a really big brand for himself. And
0: yeah, he really has.
1: I'm curious what you think about his view of uh, when you're hiring. Like, is it more about what's on the resume, or is it more about the attitude, and and or maybe what the person like wants to do with their career? Um, just because I feel like a lot of jobs these days don't require t- too many advanced degrees. I mean, there's a lot of people just doing work that could be frankly, done by a lot of different people, you know? And so how do you filter resumes? Um, Do you filter by um, who's the most passionate about what the work is or by skill set? Like, how do you weigh those?
0: Well, I'm sure that I, I wouldn't go and say my philosophy is like, you know, something that every single recruiter does. It's just the way I was trained to do it. Um, and that's what's interesting about our field. I think a lot of people think, you know, it's a science and an art, um, but it's maybe more of an art than a science. And, I actually, I definitely think it's pretty equal in the way that we view. So, I don't spend that much time on a resume, to be honest, because I've weighed too much in terms of volume. Like right now, I'm recruiting actively for 32 jobs. I have 600 resumes to review for those 32 jobs. (laughs) Um, So, if you actually do the math, I mean, I can't really spend more than 30 seconds on a resume. So, what I really look for is I need to know that the heavy hitter experience is there. So like I already know the kinds of people that I can see succeeding in this role. So every single one of those thirty-two roles, um, they're not all different profiles. So I might be hiring like five salespeople or like five account directors, and or maybe two product marketers. Like it's very very easy to see. I only really pay attention to your first two jobs, and I do care about you know in terms of. Just kind of the skills that I put in this job description, which is why if you're reaching out to multiple job postings with the same resume, the chances of us really thinking like you're a right fit for one of them is not really high. Like I've had people submit the same resume for six jobs at my current company. And I will think, okay, so they think they can do six jobs and they're all widely different. So they applied to like a data science role or like a product manager role and a salesperson role. They're just not the same skill set. So I really recommend studying the job description if it is something that you want and making sure you're tailing your resume to high hit those bullets because usually um, in recruiting, there we don't really overstaff. Like right now, we ha- in my company currently, we have four recruiters we have 100 jobs. So most of us are taking 25 jobs each. So um, being really, really clear and succinct about what you are and what you represent and how you can add value is a good way to go. I definitely think applying is good. A lot of people message me and think, hey, I uh, saw this role, would love to get on an informational call. But if I look at my day and I have 25 jobs, or you know, 25 to 32 jobs to recruit for at a given time, my calendar space is super limited, right? So, applying is great first, but then also hunting down like that organizational design I was talking to you about earlier, um, the hiring manager is really where you want to be talking to anyway, because I mean, my my biggest goal is to make sure that they're happy and that they're staffing their teams in a timely, excitedly and timely way. Um, they're the people that you you actually want on your side because that hiring manager will reach out to me and say, like, hey, I had this really awesome conversation with this prospective candidate. Let's see if we can, you know, fast track them in terms of interviewing.
1: Can you can you distinguish the, the difference between your role and the hiring manager? Is that someone who's adjacent to you, or
0: the hiring manager is my partner in the search? So, like, if there is an opening on a certain department, so I work with just sales and marketing right now. Back at Seed Invest, I worked with every single kind of department. Um, basically, what their job is like, they we're partners in that I need to make sure that there's a qualified pipeline, like a funnel of qualified people for them to interview, and therefore. Make sure that we are staffing this role in a timely way because time is money to an organization, um, and especially for the roles that I work with right now, sales is a, a revenue is a huge part of our hitting our goals as a company. So the longer it takes for me to hire somebody, the longer it takes for them to be trained, and like the the bigger the strain on the rest of the organization. So the hiring manager and me are really the people responsible in terms of partnering together to make sure that this role is filled in a timely way.
1: Got it. So if we backtrack, so if I'm an applicant to your organization, it's better to submit the resume to end and wait to hear back and should we message anybody or is it better to not bother you?
0: No, you should absolutely, absolutely apply. You can absolutely shoot me a message too but the hiring manager and it's relatively easy to find them especially if you know how to hurt son, like search and LinkedIn. Um, most organizations... Unless you're applying to like a Google or something where there's 50,000 people. Um, most of the smaller startups, it's very easy to find who works where. And I would just you know try to either DM them, LinkedIn message them, or email them. And there's like so many tools out there that are actually free that you can actually hunt people's resume um, emails, hunter.io is one of them. You can easily go ahead and kind of hunt anyone's email. Um, and it's much easier than you would think to actually find these emails because most people are just using their full names now. Right, right.
1: <laughs> so, do you think that cover letters and like the format of the resume matter so much to you, or um, it's doesn't matter anymore because everybody's on LinkedIn? Like, would you rather just like receive a message? Do you even read the cover letter? You know, I think. I mean, I sometimes I also do hiring, and I think it's sometimes nice to see a cover letter. Um, even though they just scan it, it shows that they they put some more thought in this, and it's not just throwing resumes everywhere.
0: Um, I do think it makes a lot of sense to include one. Like it will never not it would never really hurt you to include a cover letter. I think more people more and more people don't seem to address really what the point of a cover letter is. Like it's not really to say, "Hey, I applied to this job. It would be awesome to hear from you." It's mostly like. You know, I just maybe need two sentences on why you want this job, why it makes sense for you in terms of your next step. Um, it doesn't have to be this big, elaborate, flowery thing, because I, on average, I will probably spend 30 seconds to one minute on it. Um, so I also only really use it as a deal breaker, like a like an, uh, one of those tools if I'm not sold on the resume. So this is, it's interesting for someone who wants to make a career trans- transition. So like I'm, not, I'm looking for people right now with sales experience for 20 years, right? And if somebody was like in finance for 10 and now decided to move into healthcare for 10, I would have to kind of see where that jump was and l- understand what why they want to kind of work at Komodo because ultimately I'm not just hiring for just to get the seat filled. I do care if like this person is in seat for like 18 months because it takes three months really to find the right person and for them to be effective anyway. So um, hiring slowly is fine for the right organization as long as it's the right pe- person. And that's the way Seed Invest hired. But... Um, I would definitely say that cover letters in general it's it's a nice to have, but if your resume and your experience and your LinkedIn just kind of reflects the skill set I'm hunting for, that's really all I need.
1: Right. It's like if you're hiring for sales, and this person has twenty years experience and has the, you know, the credentials and resume, you know, the the metrics behind what they've done. It's uh, a cover letter is not going to be really necessary. It's just like I'm a salesperson, and that's what I do, and it's pretty straightforward, I guess.
0: Yep, exactly.
1: So, would you prefer a resume over LinkedIn or both? Like, you look at LinkedIn anyway, right? So.
0: I At LinkedIn anyway. Um, I definitely, for roles that it's like harder to fill, I need to make sure that I'm really, it's usually me doing the outreach anyway, because I, it's not like every single role will attract the right kind of applicant. Um, There's definitely some like deceiving roles that seem easy to fill that are just not, and I have to identify the right population. Um, So I would definitely say Having both is ideal if there is a position you like, um, but if you're a person that I'm actively hunting because you have a specialized skill set, um, tech recruiting, this is like tech recruiting 101 because most engineers are not fly- applying for jobs. It's just like not really in their MO to do that. Right, they're too they're high demand.
1: <laughs> they, yeah. they just get, I'm sure they get flooded with emails every day. They really do. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> cool, so... Uh, transitioning over to now like going into the interview process or application process um, you know we see a lot of things coming up like uh, surveys sort of like emotional EQ surveys like asking people are you an extrovert and introvert try to place people a little more holistically Um, there's also um, just case studies that uh, that's a whole other thing about you know personally like I I did an interview once uh, a few years back where I had to submit. A, a, uh, well, first, they had me on like three or four interviews, it was back to back, and then I was sent home with a case study. And then I think I went back two or three times. It was like a total of nine interviews, and then I had to do like a whiteboarding. Wow. Um, You know, as sort far of like a consulting role, and, <laughs> and they were like stringing me along, and I was like, I thought I had this, and then you know, it didn't pan out for whatever reason. I'm just like, well, they just took a lot of you know, of my time and if Reedy and I were talking or like, is the future like, can we get paid to do like <laughs> these case studies or like work that, you know, you know, or, you know? they're maybe not using our case studies or whatever, but you know, it's like taking up our time and, you know, are we also not valuable as applicants? Um, you know, what do you think about these recruiting techniques and then like the notorious questions from Google and stuff
0: like that? <laughs> it's a good, it's a good um, question. I, I, I've done the same thing, right? Like I, my hardest interview probably was at Cedar Vest, where I had like ten hours of interviewing. I think I came like twice. Uh, um, it was, and I took two days off on of my day job to get like have this interview, and I did some whiteboarding, and um, I, I was really lucky that I ended up getting the job. But that being said, it was a very much a learning experience for me. So I think a good measure and a good Way of even actually thinking, hey, like, can I do this job? Is a good, this is a good metric for it, right? Because if you didn't love how long the interview was because it wasn't interesting in terms of the work, and so, some companies do this on purpose, like, they do want to actually weed out the people that just wouldn't love this role long term because there has to be a reason why you're staying at this job day in, day out. We've actually, there's a lot of psychological studies saying that like your happiness doesn't really correlate with your salary. There's actually a tap in terms of you could be making, you know, $195,000 a year, right? But like you would have probably been happier maybe making 125 or something because you have more work-life balance or maybe you have like a more remote freedom. Like there's a lot of things that are not tied with compensation that are just as valuable and just as things that you should actually negotiate and offers. Um, That's like the underside of recruiting that I think a lot of people don't seem to really utilize, Um, most likely because they just don't know. But that being said, I definitely think companies that do things like that and are not respectful of a candidate's time, and didn't give you real feedback on why you didn't even get the job. I think that is a big flag to the culture because if you regularly are roping candidates and having them come in for like 10 hours, this should be an informational interview also for the candidate to see if it would be a long-term fit. Mm-hmm. And, um, the more senior you are, the more interviews you usually actually go to, go to, um, I right. recruited, I think about, Fifteen to twenty directors, and in, in my like very short tenure so or so far, but um, they all took a re- relatively long time in terms of making that decision.
1: Yeah, I think that makes sense for for both sides, so they can s- see if it's a good fit. Um, and I guess it's just, it's just part of the process. It's not. Fun all the time, <laughs> but it's
0: definitely not fun sometimes.
1: So always wondering like, how can we better you know match people to organizations and um, maybe have more filtering of? Uh, but at the same time, it's like a lot of the times maybe the organization doesn't necessarily know what they want or the applicant either. So it just becomes yeah, very much an art, like you were saying. Like, and then after you get hired, you figure it out. Um, sometimes you really want that job, and then like six months in you're like this is not for me or something you know so
0: absolutely well I don't know if you've read this book but called Grit by Angela Duckworth have you read it? I know it? of it yes yeah they actually said I mean they did this study on just kind of like who the most qualified person was basically um, and a lot of concepts in different companies like use the same model where you think you might know what you want, right? Like you want somebody with a bachelor's degree and like 10 years of experience in a certain, in, in something that you're hunting for. Because on paper, that seems like it would be successful. But there are definitely scenarios in which. Hiring someone a little bit more junior that like may not have take every single box, but has grit, which you know is like they will work tirelessly, they will work hard, they will, um, you know, find creative out of the box solutions. Like ultimately, that's a little bit more valuable to a startup, for example, where the problems are not really clear, right? So I mean, in terms of like a clear solution. So they've definitely kind of shown that just because you're hiring this stereotypical, very smart person like somebody who went to an Ivy League that has like a 4.0 and you know was like valedictorian, that's not a recipe for success all the time. And it's really not inclusive of people who didn't have the same privileges growing up.
1: Yeah, speaking of privileges, that is very much a factor in recruiting. And um, since you're only spending 30 seconds on resumes, I imagine it's really hard to also... Um, care about diversity and inclusion when hiring because you're just like I need to fill this spot like what you know with this bigger topic everybody talking about you know it was on our first episode of the podcast like how do you be mindful of of uh, you know all this pedigree and you know basically diversity and inclusion when you're hiring
0: It's a, that's a very hot topic in recruiting right now. And I think that there's a lot of ways to address it. None of them are perfect, right? So um, I'm not really, I I didn't go to an Ivy League school. My parents did not go to college. I, um... I'm very sensitive to these two issues because, you know, I'm usually working with a hiring manager and maybe like, you know, they went to an Ivy League and they're like, "Rath, I I need someone who went to an Ivy Ivy League school. Like, it's just very important to me. And I think it's on a lot of people to really re-educate that just because you went to, you know, you had the resources or maybe you were lucky enough to get a scholarship to go to an Ivy League school. I mean, you know student debt and college debt are like huge things, oh, huge sure. topics yeah. right now. Um, I think that diversity and inclusion can mean a lot of things to a lot of different people. Like right now, there's a big movement on like you know we need to get more women in leadership because because and also there's what five percent of CEOs as of like 2018 are like in top 100 companies or something like that. I mean, that statistic is always kind of around those same numbers. I think unless there's like real systematic change in terms of correcting why people get into a certain situation anyway, because um, sometimes I get, one of the biggest reasons some people get hired is because of referrals, right? So in my industry right now, healthcare is very small. So for the most part, most people know each other. So like say you're not in this network and you're not going to be referred for this job. It's still in play even if that person didn't go into like an Ivy League school because they know somebody that knew somebody that means like, you know, we vetted them somehow on the back channel and like they should get this job over someone else. So while it, it – I just don't think the world is equal and I I mean that sounds – it, it sounds maybe pessimistic, yeah. but it is true. <laughs> no, I don't think
1: we're honest enough with the fact that I don't think we can leave it up to companies to solve diversity and inclusion when it's a big structural cultural issue. Um, exactly. You know, and we're putting all this pressure on companies and they are just trying to... I mean, some companies with larger resources, obviously, like the big corporates have more resources to tackle diversity and inclusion. but if you're a small operation, you're like, I need to fill this role. Like it's, uh, you know, whatever. Um, so. Yeah, and I
0: mean, I brought it up a couple of different times, I think, um, in various points of my career because, you know, I'm a woman of color. I did not go to an Ivy League school, but I did go to a good school, right? And I could only afford that school because... I had a scholarship because I was a woman of color. So, you know, it was, it's an interesting loop, I think, because no one, you're right, no one's really solved it. Mm -hmm. There have been more efforts on making sure that the, the playing field is a little bit more equal. But I mean, in terms of salary, in terms of just even the access to different resources, I do interview training at this um, at like a small nonprofit in New York City and it's basically just towards women who want to get back in the workforce because they were homeless or lost their jobs or like had drug addiction and you know half of these women do not have the qualifications of somebody I would actually hire like I because they didn't you know go to go to college and that almost for every single job I'm recruiting for you need to have gone to college mm-hmm. so for part of me even though I'm trying to Balance the scales in a very small way by trying to train people on how to interview better. I do know that ultimately we have to institute more programs, or, you know, there has to be some sort of governmental support on getting more people back in the workforce that, or like, you know, reconstituting different jobs that just have died. Like, we do need more people in trade school you know, like it's a big supply and demand type of situation. And when you think about, you know, people in plumbing or carpentry, like, you know, Mm. those fields are mostly male dominated, right? So there's a lot of areas in which I think we can definitely expand. But I mean, it's not just like one cookie cutter chapter that works for everyone, everyone, a single person.
1: Yeah, I I agree. And um, for me, when I recruit and look at people and and, and uh, interview, I think for me values uh, and integrity and just like attitude are are really important. Um, I think a lot of people can pick up skills along the way, and um, I don't know. I, I went to those prestigious schools. I did the Ivy League because like there was so much pressure in my. Um, I don't know school to like go to those places, and once you got there, I'm like, oh, this is it! Like, <laughs> <you're> like <laughs> oh, this is what I'm paying for, and and then they try to like tout you, like, oh, you're at this best school because you're the best and the brightest, and blah blah blah. And it's like, no, like, not <laughs> really. Um, you just we just <laughs> played into your game, and now I'm paying you all this tuition. Um, and you know. You know there's obviously smart kids there and um but there's smart kids everywhere and um I think it's all about how you hustle and cuz that's how we this society works is like who hustles the most doesn't really matter where you went and it's a shame that like you had to work with someone who's like oh I need someone from an Ivy League school like I I really hope that culture moves away um I don't really lean on my alumni networks too much and and care too much about where people went to school. It's, I don't know, it just creates a barrier. Um, My husband, you know, I tell people all the time, he like went uh, to school in Brazil free all the way through PhD. I think he has a much better education than I will ever have because like, I don't know, he really valued it. um, And uh, it wasn't also... (laughs) you know, a (laughs) Eurocentric education with certain, you know, a lot of education is learning and then after education, you're like unlearning things and, and it's not always, I I just don't see why people still value the prestige. And I think that's going to move away, um, in the next 10 years. I think schools are really actually struggling to, to sell their value, um, because of the student debt and, um, you know, I see them promoting all the time on on social media. Oh, we have this new program in like robotics or something. And it's just like, <laughs> you know, a lot of I graduated my master's I don't know six years ago. I don't know, probably a lot of the software that I learned is probably outdated anyway now. So, I don't know, teach their own. But I think people put too much emphasis on. The education part. Education is separate I think than professional. Like you go get an education for an education and I think we try to make it like uh, you're getting an education to get a job which I think that's uh, two different things.
0: I completely agree. I do. I did debate going back to school after I graduated. So I graduated in twenty twelve. Um, so I've been, you know, kind of the workforce about eight years now. And like about year four, I was like, Oh, Rad! Like, you know, you're not gonna go get your. You're not going to law school. Um, and I did all the prep to go to law school. I took the LSAT. I like, you know, just kind of did the whole shebang. And I was like, okay, like maybe I'll go get my MBA. So I just like looked at my student debt. So I was fortunate enough that I went to a school that you know I I really feel like I got a great education, Um, but it was very very small. It was a liberal arts school. I went to a school called Lafayette, and, you know, it was like an insane amount of money a year. So it was Mm -hmm. like fifty five thousand or something like that annually. And I remember I got most of it just kind of covered through scholarships and things like that. But it wouldn't cover room or board, so I had to take you know some loans out for room, or board and, room and board, and um, it ended up being like 20 grand in debt or something that I graduated with in terms of when I was a senior. Uh, and I'm hitting your eight, still, you know, probably only made 50% of a dent into it because of interest and insurance. Of like, it's
1: crazy, it is
0: crazy how much I'm only 20, only 20,
1: hey, K- and you're still paying that.
0: And there. also, all of my friends probably have more than me, and I'm very, very grateful yeah. for my position, but. I'm listening to numbers that are like sixty grand to eighty grand, and like you know, people who are just like always deferring because they just can't afford their student debt. So, it's a it's a real issue, and I definitely think when I was pricing out schools, I only looked abroad, and it's insane how much less it costs.
1: Yeah, I I think the system needs a total revamp. Uh, you know, I saw my brother went to to MIT. He was with all these smart engineering students. Um, And then they all got funneled into finance. So, uh, you know, not that finance is the worst thing, but, you know, I don't know if that's the best use of (laughs) educating engineers and and doing these things. Like, I think um, we have to really rethink the way we're doing this whole funnel. Um, And that's sort of why we are... The way we are now,
0: yeah. I mean, there was the the biggest reasons I lo- only looked at being a doctor or a lawyer was because of the financial liberties it allows you. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was an English and psychology major, and I, re- I mean, luckily I had really supportive parents that were like, "Oh, you could probably use that, I guess, for liberal arts and go be a lawyer," you know, but. Um, to them, that was security, right? Like they didn't go to college and they would rather me be in a, like a field that just was going to be stable. And I, I would actually challenge them now in terms of the landscape. I mean, I'm not sure anything is like relatively stable anymore, right? I mean, like you'll always need doctors But like, look at the lawyer supply now, right? Right. Like, um, there are situations in which you just kind of have to maybe diversify the way that you're getting income, and I think that's the piece is going to be the differentiator.
1: Yeah, I mean, do you think employers are starting to see that people aren't going to be at your company? I mean, they know you're not probably not going to be at your company that long, or or people need to have more options, you know. That so much there's so much more instability than there was in past generations.
0: Well, I think a lot of organizations are designing for it now. So we actually do. I mean, or this is what's interesting about organizational design. We actually do already know that, like the moment we hire somebody, you know, eighteen months is like nice, but. 18 to 24 months is not really normal anymore mm-hmm. in terms of like people just being in their one position, which is why most startups are like, you know, deviating away from just like set titling, or um, there's definitely options for you to have learning and development opportunities and like that be part of, your, part of your value proposition for joining a company. Um, people have noticed that people stay at longer, stay longer at companies that offer remote work because it's just much easier on their lifestyle. Yeah. And they'd rather not switch jobs, even if it meant like a 10 to $15,000 jump in salary because it means you're sacrificing your comfort. So there's definitely different levers now that more employers are pulling to make sure that their employees feel valued. Um, there is a little bit of this mentality that that the like the man is after you, like the employer that'll um, you know, is always like kinda pick the house always wins, right? And I mean to a certain extent that is not wrong. I mean an organization will choose itself over its people if it meant like the organization will just collapse. Right. But most I mean, a lot of organizations do realize that their value do does come from their people, which is why they're and depending on the company and this is a big red flag if you're looking they should treat you like a person. Like I, that's something that I've noticed. Um, a bad interview experience. It usually does not get better. Yeah, it's a big indicator <laughs> on like how they treat their people long term.
1: Oh, tell me about. It. Yeah, I was just, I was just <laughs> actually, I meant to bring this up earlier, but I was at a an employee seminar, an employee law seminar last night about all the changes in laws and the new minimum wage, and um, you can't run credit. Or background checks on people, um, which I don't know. I'm pretty progressive. And I think that's, I don't know, if someone is like, has a criminal history, it, I don't know how you check for that. You can talk about that. <laughs> but <laughs> um, but it's, you know, it's a good, it's like pro- progressive policy is great because it like brings these new changes and then, but it also brings all like this bu- bureaucracy. I'm like, can't we just like, uh, like, why do all these like bad bosses make it horrible for everybody? And that's when I go back to my dream of, Universal basic income that just like gives people like just sort of like a safety buffer, so we're not like going crazy over tracking overtime and sick days and all these things. I don't know, you know, it's like
0: it's I, a, yeah. I can't,
1: I don't want to do that.
0: <laughs> it's it, it's very sticky, and I think um, you know the it's been it's because a lot of people have definitely been just screwed over in the past and I mean you know I don't know if you saw the new laws around interns but I mean California is kind of one of the most progressive com- uh, states that kind of does this but yeah, I think even at like five people in California like you need to pay your interns and you need right. to pay the minimum wage and um, the, when I graduated yeah that's important yeah. yeah when I graduated that was not a thing though you know like I mean unpaid internships were the way to go everybody had one you were lucky to even have one for a year right um,
1: and that's a form of privilege to be able to work for free yeah so.
0: Yeah, so there's definitely ways that I think it's gotten a lot better for people. I think that there's more resourcing. And I've also, I interview a lot of Gen Zers now because I'm staffing for more junior roles. Um, I'm always
1: curious about them. <laughs> 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 what are they? What are you seeing there?
0: <laughs> um, I think that they're, I actually think that they give me a lot of hope, to be honest, yeah. you know, because... Me too. I think that um, they really... They, they're not as stressed about jobs in terms of their worth as I think I was when I was graduating because I went in 2012 and even before then, I mean, 2008 was a terrible year for jobs in general. Um, it, where I was and just kind of the way I viewed jobs, I viewed it as like a sense of worth. And like if I didn't have one, I meant I was like a terrible person that was worthless in society and the Gen Zers I talk to are much more worried about climate change or like, you know, how do we actually progress to a society where your job doesn't just make you whoever you are. Right. Um, yeah. So I'm not sure what... I, I'm not really connected enough to that, that uh, generation to really know where it's coming from. But I do know that... I think that there's a lot of issues that they're really trying to take a take a stand against. And I think that they're really involved in politics much more than I was when I was their age. And mm-hmm. I think I see a sense of maturity that really actually does make me happy.
1: Yeah, same here. I have some nieces who are Gen Zers and um, I agree, they're very mature, maybe um because they're women, <laughs> they're <laughs> um, I saw this meme about like women mature faster than boys because uh, women are disciplined more than boys at a younger age or something like that. You know,
0: I would not be surprised.
1: Um, but yeah, I do. I am. I'm also starting to think more like them, and I've. For a long time, up until I was like thirty, before we started Pineapple, I think that's why we started Pineapple because we didn't want our jobs anymore to define who we were necessarily. Um, so much of my life was about that because so much of societal pressure is about that, and I think we underestimate the societal pressure around work, and you know that's why we created this podcast to like dismantle um, this. I don't know all the toxicity around on workplace and everything, so.
0: You're right. There's definitely a lot of toxicity around it, and I've uh, I've been at a place that's recent for me, but really a nice place to be. And I, it's most likely because I'm going to be turning a new decade soon. I'm turning 30 in March, mm-hmm. and um, I think uh, I've I felt older than I was in a lot like in a lot of different ways for a while now. But um, when I was looking at people in terms of when I was interviewing them, it made me it made me think. I love getting to know people and their motivations and why they want a certain job and that sort of thing. It's one of the reasons I like being in my field. But I also, I think it's really healthy to distance yourself from like what you do is not who you are. I mm-hmm. just ne- I just don't subscribe to that. And um, I used to, that used to really be me. I used to think that no matter what I did, it meant, it meant something to me in terms of what I stood for. And now I realize... It, the U.S. definitely has this fixation with that. And maybe it's just because I'm in New York and I'm hitting year seven in New York and maybe that's one of the reasons why I've noticed this so much, but I get, what do I do all the time?
1: Yeah, I. it's <laughs> the question in New York and it's something I don't ask really anymore because... It ends the conversation. There's nothing. Oh, you do that? Oh, okay. Yeah. You're an accountant. Well, yeah, if you get it like an accountant as an answer is like, well, I'm not going to really ask anything beyond that. You know, Like I know what you do.
0: Yeah. And I know a lot of people who do something that they don't really love, but it gives them a life that they really love. Yeah. So I definitely have respect for people's professions and it's great if you're passionate about it and it's awesome. But... I definitely don't think it like to me um, just because you're in finance and you're you know just in finance because it provides like this amazing life for your family okay, that is great for you. you know I'm much more interested in like who are you reading and what are you passionate about and I don't really get to ask those questions in interviews but I do respect people who have that healthy boundary and it's only a boundary that I've recently created for myself
1: right. Yeah, I make it a habit now to when I go out with friends. Like, we don't really want to. I don't want to bring up work that much. I want to talk about yeah, what you're reading, what you're watching. Um, you know, just keep it light. Um, so.
0: And it might just be because we have, we're have we living in a heavy time. So yeah. maybe that could be <laughs> one of the reasons I've noticed.
1: I've definitely put a pause on my news consumption just because it's just been too much. Um, but it's interesting your, your reflections on the Gen Z and sort of where we're heading into the future with jobs and recruiting and um, sort of like... This, we're kind of living in these unstable times, and the future is very unstable. And everybody, I think, is kind of concerned about that, myself included. And um, you know, what is a 401k anymore with your job? If that is that going to even exist? Like, there's pensions dis- disappearing. Um, you know, I I was mentioning to people like we need a a climate change retirement plan instead of a traditional one. But I don't think people some. You know, I think the older generations aren't considering it as much because they're just like over it. And some people are, but um, so I guess once you get the job, like, or once you, I should say, once you get the job offer, what are you seeing? We did want to touch on like negotiation and and what you're seeing that works and that I think is something people want to know more about.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And this is also another topic I get a lot of questions about. Um, and it's definitely resources I wish I had when I was earlier in my career. Um, the more senior you are, the more negotiation power you have because you We are. If you were at a final stage with you, uh, we do want you. I mean, if we're saying like, "Hey, give us your references." Um, you know, what does your timeline look like? And you have this job offer firmly in your hand you should have had a couple conversations about comp before you kind of get to this position. Like it shouldn't be a surprise to you that you are getting X when you asked for Y because any good recruiter, any good hiring manager, depending on who you're working with really closely on comp negotiations, they should have known like, hey, this is too big of a delta for us to afford this person. So what kinds of compensation can I do to supplement um, the delta that we have? So this is a very big problem for startups because most of the time they can't afford somebody at their full price or their full expectations because they don't have the resources to do so. Right. So, different ways to navigate that, um, you know, ask if from a negotiation standpoint if you're rec- recruiting with working with a startup, make sure you ask for more equity. I mean, it's one of the biggest things that startups can give you and you never know in terms of like it, it's funny money at that time, right? So, it, technically you need to kind of figure out what that pool or share looks like. Like I definitely recommend pushing back and asking like what what part of my shares represent the total pool um as for a sign on bonus the more senior you are the more leverage you have it on average it costs us like 10,000 10,000 to 15,000 even for two, like for us to launch just search when you add up everyone's time that interviewed you um it's a good metric to go by because you know most of the time like we would rather just pay that 10 to 15k because we just want to get this signed and done um, more often than not, whenever I get to the finish line and give somebody a job offer, um, what's kind of funny is all the men always negotiate with me, but the women hardly ever do. And I really would love to see that change because, I yeah. mean, I'm trained on how to push back respectfully on that and I've had so many negotiation conversations at this point. Um, and there's also... Most of the time, I do have a funnel big enough that like I can see three to five people accepting this job. So it's like, while you might be my first choice and I would love to have you here, um, I have a plan B, C, or D. So, you know, I would, I definitely think those three are the main to hit on. Like, I think you should ask for more equity, especially if you're at a startup, because that's something they can afford almost all of the time. <laughs> um, and depending on the size. Uh, Sign on bonuses depends on resources of the company. Bigger companies definitely have it. Um, startups, it's a yes or no, it's usually 50 50, but you should definitely think about bridging that delta. Um, most of the time, the delta that I've seen so, like, it's illegal for me to ask you how much you make, but right. I can definitely phrase That's it. As part of the new
1: laws, right? Yes, yeah. yeah.
0: And part of it was uh, we can't just keep you know underpaying people when they were just kind of shafted for a certain salary. It w- I should be paying you for what the job is worth. Um, But that being said, I can phrase it like, what are your compensation expectations for your next step? Because that way, at least I know that you're on the ballpark of what I can afford. And if you're like 20 to 30K off, I could probably still afford you because I could throw in like a 10K sign-on potentially depending on like what it's worth or I could give you more equity or I could ask for the soft stuff. You know, like say they're going to be taking a 20K baseline hit on your take-home I mean, that's a lot, right? So like, can I work one or two days from home? Can I get unlimited vacation? Can I, there's a lot of soft things that you can ask for like that, that a lot of people don't think about. because Yeah, I
1: like those. But those. I didn't think you could ask for. You can absolutely
0: ask. Yeah. And in fact, the only thing I don't recommend is, I mean, you know, you shouldn't be like, hey, if I don't get this, like. It shouldn't be an argument by any means. It should definitely be like a respectful conversation because that's what it is at that point. Um, but you also need to be prepared to walk away mm-hmm. if if that is the case. Like I've had people use fake offers to negotiate <laughs> with me.
1: <laughs> How did you um, find out they were fake?
0: Well, basically they were, they said something like along the lines of, I was like, oh, like that's unfortunate that you have this offer, but you know, this is probably the best we can do. And they would like turn around within an hour and be like, okay, sorry, you know, um, this is like the best fit for me. It just makes us lose trust in you. Like if you Mm -hmm. just kind of pretend that you have this offer, um, I'm not saying that happens that often because it really doesn't, but you sh- if you are really adamant about what you want and it, it's your pretty this is just like a leverage tool it's just not really the right leverage tool because I would I want to go with somebody who has the right passion for the job because in 18 months at least they'll still be here um, and there's a lot of things that people don't value that I think that they should I mean the money thing 10k if it means like much more flexibility in your mental life and real clear boundaries that's worth 10k
1: yeah.
0: So, I mean, I'm probably going to, you know, um, there's definitely times in my career where maybe I was just not getting the number I expected with, you know, having seven to eight years of recruiting experience and especially with the levels of recruiting I've done now. But either I was doing something I was completely obsessed with or like I had a boss that I like truly adored that really let me grow. Um, Or like right now I have an amazing balance, right? Like I have Great coworkers, I have great hours, and I have a I have like a great remote works lifestyle. If I need it, um, for me that's insanely important in this time in my career. But five years ago, it really wasn't.
1: Yeah, I think the older you get, you're like. I would like to work from home <laughs> 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 not deal with the BS all the time. It's, it's a good break and sometimes you get more done.
0: Well, yeah, just... today I had to do like five people's reviews and I've been trying for, I was in the office most of this week um, and I, I think four hours at home easily did it because I'm an extrovert so I get my energy from people right. and being around people. But I almost get too distracted when I'm in an office because I'm so like happy to be around people and everyone's working. Um, but sometimes you need to have that focus, heads down time. So I think um, companies that really give you that responsible, autonomous, like, hey, I trust you to do your work because that's why I hired you and you're a competent person. Like the less micromanaging you have to do, that's where I've seen more and more people stay with a company.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think micromanaging is a management style that's proven <laughs> not to work <laughs> yeah, very well.
0: Absolutely.
1: Um, great. So I guess just wrapping up, like we can just talk about what you think the future of recruiting is. Like, what do you think? Where do you think it's going? Are there going to be more recruiters in the future? Um, do you think technology is making it easier? Um, what are what you What are you seeing trend wise?
0: Trend wise, I think that recruiting is really, really interesting because because I think so many people need it as a skill, and I think that um, you don't have to be a recruiter as in a title like or a talent acquisition partner, which is the new terminology for the most part. Um, a lot of recruiters might sometimes work for third party organizations and people who are in house, which is like the only place I've recruited. Um, they look at those a little differently unless you're a really senior person. So like there's executive search firms that like mm-hmm. look for CEOs or people like that. But um, there are, I would say the future is definitely much more like you're your own boss, um, and you are kind of in control of your hours and you have a healthy balance. I that that's the model I've seen really working. I'm not saying like, Companies will disappear, you will always like need good people to run your company and there will always be jobs in certain ways. But in terms of the trends I've been seeing, I've seen that everybody now that I'm interviewing, especially on the 15 to 20 year mark, you know, consulting is just kind of the bread and butter. Like They do that in, in order to make sure that they always have a steady stream of income or always stay nimble or um, just diversifying their income is honestly the best kind of thing I've seen in most of my candidates. Um, A lot of people just do something on the side that gives them money or, you know, like even something as simple as like running an Etsy shop, right? Like it's most of the people that I work with now use a skill in some other capacity rather than just having one job that's coming from one employer. So I definitely think the future, especially now that I've been in tech hiring for a while, what I've seen for the most part is a lot of people make a lot of shifts, very, very dramatically. I mean, like a year sometimes is just, I've seen people with like uh, five, one year stints and they have like maybe 21 years of experience or something like that. But um, the more I've noticed that more and more people are willing to give up a little bit on the salary side, as long as they're solving an interesting problem. And it's funny, I'm in an industry that um, my job is to grow companies, but ironically, I'm happiest, actually, when it's like a little bit smaller because you don't have to worry about the policies a little bit so much. And for me, the fun in recruiting is really bringing in really talented, awesome, great people. So um, I think the skill of recruiting, we're teach it's a lot more unified and focused. And I think there's a lot more, uh, I think there's a lot coming in terms of, I think jobs will go away. I do think the recession (laughs) is coming, but it's a cycle. It always does. And like then now, like even though the unemployment rate is so low, um, you know that's why recruiters are kind of at their heyday right now because I think the unemployment rate is like what at three point nine or something crazy.
1: Yeah. Um, But people are working multiple jobs even with that low rate. Exactly.
0: And I think it it is really because you're trying to save for a rainy day, or at this point, you know, it's a day without the ozone layer, right? Like it's, (laughs) it's. um, I think a lot of people are really trying to be mindful about where they're spending and their carbon footprint, and where to offset it, and make sure that they have like tons in terms of savings because I think everyone's been burned a little bit.
1: That that's interesting, and thank you for talking about where we're headed. It's it's interesting that you're seeing that as a recruiter, um, people. Having these different streams of income and people being more transparent about it, because I feel like in the past it was probably looked down upon, or like you don't want your boss doesn't want you distracted with another job, or or what is this? You've had five jobs in three years, you know. So that's interesting that, and it's good to hear as a recruiter that, and it's it's interesting that the the actual uh, applicants are are shaping recruiting, not just it's it's a two way street, not just. Recruiters saying this is who we are, and take it or leave it.
0: I think we had to grow up in a lot of ways, right? I mean, to be if you want to attract the best talent, you need the, most of those people who are really talented, they're not just doing
1: one thing, <laughs> right? Yeah,
0: so we had to de- evolve with the supply.
1: Awesome, all right. Anything else?
0: Well, thank you so much again for having me on this podcast. I'm a huge fan of just kind of. Where you're building, what your mission is, and I've listened to a couple episodes. So um, this was a great conversation. Thank you so much for inviting me.
1: Yeah, thank you, Rath. Thanks for coming in and good luck with everything. Oh, thank you. To all our listeners, if you have any questions and comments about this episode, we encourage you to email us at hello at aboveandbelow.nyc. We have many more topics to cover about the future of the workplace. And you can stay in the loop with us by subscribing to our channels on iTunes, Spotify, or Anchor. Thanks so much for listening.